This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, episode 12 of Winter 2018. I'm Theta, and today we are talking about episode 12 of Darling in the Franks. It seems we'll be getting that two-part mid-season throwdown showdown that I suggested last time, and man, did it deliver. There's actually so much to talk about that I am not going to talk about everything. It's still going to be really long, so let's dive right in. Our series changes tone from the previous few episodes, and to mark this shift, we have a change in the setting and weather as well. We have returned to Hero as narrator, further indicating that we have moved back to the main story. In fact, there are a lot of parallels between this episode and the very first episode, starting with the fact that they both begin with snowfall. Plantation 13 is rumbling through the snow like some massive trans-Siberian train, and our squad is not content to wait out the journey indoors. We learn quickly that their biodome is not as sealed as you might imagine, and both the snowflakes and the cold penetrate within. They are attempting to peer through the gloom to see what lies ahead, something Goto spotted earlier, and now they all strain to see. As the plantation leaves familiar, warmer areas, Hiro is narrating about how where he comes from does not matter to him, that living in the present is all he cares about. In fact, he says that this is a defining feature of being human, he believed that Zero Two felt the same way, but the phrasing indicates that this isn't true. Where she came from will turn out to matter to her a great deal. They are not on the same page, and in the scene, they are also not even in the same place. Zero Two is alone, while the rest of the squad is together. She is digging through their study, uh, apparently in search of picture books. If you remember back in the episode where the parasites all receive gifts, Hira received a field guide to birds. Zero Two at first thought that was a picture book, and Ehon, a word I pointed out then, suggested a children's book. Hiro believed that they might have some in the study, and this apparently is her finally looking for such a thing, without success. This will come up again later in this episode, and it will also fuel some of my speculation. It is Futoshi who spots their destination through the fog, but we first have this visual. Zero Two alone and separated from the rest, Hiro looking up into the sky the snow, Ichigo looking at Hiro, and everyone else peering eagerly ahead. Zero Two, as we will learn, is searching for part of her past and looking for the book. Ichigo is pondering both her past and her future by looking at Hiro, and the rest are eyes forward on tomorrow, looking for where their journey ventures next. Yet Hiro, narrating, is watching the snow. What's significant about snow? Well, there are two tropes often invoked by Snowfall, and they show up all over the place in anime. One of these is snow means love. Most often we're indicating a change in the status or intensity of a relationship, or signaling that love will be part of what involves a character in the story. The other, interestingly, is snow means death. Not just because of the dead state of the world implied by winter, 
but the color white is also more associated with death in Eastern culture than in Western. Sometimes, though, the two show up together. Sometimes snow indicates love or death, like a fork in the road, and sometimes it indicates love and death together, as though they are inseparable. Now, there are times that cherry blossoms will be used as contrast to snow, but cherry blossoms always mean love in this case, while snow is a little bit more ambiguous. In Darling in the Franks, the entire show begins with an image of monstrous past Zero Two in the snow, and then human, presumably future Zero Two in cherry blossoms. Now, in the present, the snowfall signals that not only are both options in play, but Zero Two herself may represent both love and death for Hero. This is a fitting time to highlight the tension between these ideas, because it goes hand in hand with the other tension. He is proclaiming that where he comes from doesn't matter, at the same time that Zero Two is indicating the opposite, and both are being drawn toward the place that contains both past and future for them, the garden. The credits roll after this revelation of where they're headed. I do want to point out that we were right about them changing the opening up, putting Mitsuru and Kokoro together. Really, the way they're facing toward each other has always made more sense this way than with their original partners. After these credits, we get some establishing shots of garden. From the air, we can see that the grounds are laid out with a variety of interlocking circles, something that recalls the pattern we see in the roof above the ape council room and in the design on the flags we see during ceremonies. Actually, it does more than recall. Thanks to the power of After Effects, I can show you just what I mean by that. Now, whether one is based on the other, or both are based on some as yet unknown thing, is something we'll have to wait on. Inside the grounds, we see this white building in the foreground, and a black building in the background. The white spiraling one shows up in our opening credits, amongst Snowfall and our young parasites standing huddled against the doorway. The ominous black obelisk in the backdrop, we are told, is the Nursery 3 Laboratory, which is the thing that shows up on Hiro and Zotome's information panels that we've already seen. They definitely come from here. Now, most children, it seems, never go inside the lab, but Hiro informs us that he was a designated special research subject back then, and so came to the lab a few times. Apparently, Mitsuru did as well, but Hiro doesn't remember that. This, of course, invokes a glare from Mitsuru, but it actually indicates something besides carelessness on Hiro's part, uh, which is something we'll return to. The point of their journey comes out. They are here for tests. But as Hiro guesses, it's really Zero Two they want. She seems to anticipate this, and is clearly stressed out, biting her nails and withdrawing from the rest. By the way, how about these styling new threads? They've moved from wearing gray, neutral colors over to wearing black, almost as though in direct contrast to these guys and their white uniforms. Actually, both sets have a slight blue cast to them. Only Zero Two's coat is pure white, but her pants are pure black, and her shirt is red. Gosh, it seems like she doesn't fit into either group. I wonder if that's intentional. Our blonde Nine Alpha plays spokesman again, calling Zero Two Nine Iota, so we can go ahead and count that bit from the end of Episode Six confirmed. Same with the three apparent triplets and their masks in the back. He tries to engage Zero Two in conversation, but in such an imperious fashion that it's little wonder she ignores him. And that's probably just as he expects. This exchange brings him to the attention of the rest of the Thirteeners, especially Miku. She has a thing for the leader of other squads, apparently. I wonder if that influences Zotome's desire to be the best. 
Nine Alpha clues the Thirteeners into their own mission of escorting Zero Two to you know where, which I'm sure means the Grand Crevasse. He clues us into the fact that all plantations are headed there, not just Thirteen, so that's pretty interesting. Now he proceeds as though making small talk, but I can't help feel like this whole exchange is a little bit confrontational. He's ostensibly talking about Zero Two and his surprise that she fits in with an ordinary squad, but it's full of barely masked disbelief that all is going well, and condescension about Zero Two. I know I sound like a broken record by now, but Ichigo once again demonstrates her ability to be leader, putting any personal feelings about Zero Two aside to step forward and challenge Nine Alpha for his words. She expresses some serious solidarity with her rival, and I really wish Zero Two had been around to hear it. Ichigo firing back was not what he expected, but it doesn't seem to ruffle him at all. He decides to ruffle Ichigo's feathers instead, and Gotoro's by accident. Nana, ever the interrupter, breaks the scene up. Nine Alpha throws one final bit of insufferable presumption their way, and Ichigo responds with some overly polite shade of her own. You know, when I first talked about these guys showing up in the opening, I originally referred to them as the rivals before we later figure out they were the Nines. I still think that is what is intended, and at some point in the future, this group will be in contention with our Thirteeners for some reason. Like I said in Episode 7, I expect them to represent the opposite interests from Dr. Franks, and will compete with what he's doing to nudge our squad in another direction. This exchange is all about setting up that future encounter, I believe, so that everyone is on the same page, parasites and audience included. Next we have a montage of testing surrounding a flashback between Hero and Zero Two. It's unclear exactly where in time this encounter happens, since she appeared to give up her search for picture books at the beginning of this episode. The one book we see her interested in is that same Royce and Abigail book that I pointed out before uh, back in episode 5. Now we can see that this is The Tragedy of Royce and Abigail by Willa Shalespair. It seems we're referencing a fictional play by some alternate version of William Shakespeare. There are no Shakespearean characters by either one of those names. But the male name plus female name title pattern could potentially reference one of three plays. Most famous is Romeo and Juliet, but there's also Antony and Cleopatra, and Troilus and Cressida. They're all tragedies. They're all about attempted and ultimately failed romances between the title characters. Honestly, Romeo and Juliet is probably the least tragic of the three, as the others all involve betrayal of one title character by another, and two of the three also involve both title characters killing themselves. I won't speculate on which it may be, but if they are drawing parallels between any of these works and Hero and Zero Two's story, then it doesn't look very promising. Hero once again tries to get Zero Two to open up to him. Her response is, once again, not to open up, but engage physically, just like at the end of last episode. Combine the reference to a Shakespearean tragedy in this scene, and then compare what I said last time. Her brushing aside their other issues right now, and invoking a fatalistic notion of the two of them dying together, is not what I would call progress for them. There's more to come on this, for sure. This scene actually mirrors the confrontation they had in the bath back in episode 4. She corners him and comes on to him physically before his hesitancy makes her conclude he is repelled by her monstrous side. In that episode, it was his embarrassing confession that eventually saved the day, but she was in a much more amiable mood back then. Even so, her self-consciousness about her horns and now teeth and her monstrosity in general, makes it impossible for her to believe he is being earnest toward her. When someone's self-esteem is damaged enough, 
they are unable to believe good things about themselves. They hate themselves and certainly know themselves better than anyone else, right? If someone thinks good of them, it must be because they simply don't know them well enough. If they did, they'd hate them as much as they themselves do. The trope of a girl offering physical affection out of a place of poor self-esteem is, unfortunately, a trope that is well grounded in reality. Frequently some childhood trauma is contributory, and I feel this is suggested to us at times in the series. Even without horns, Zero Two might exhibit similar behavior. Now this is really more than a teenage boy is equipped to deal with. I'd wager most adults aren't either. The human mind is a weird labyrinth. Hero's worry and mindfulness and reflection on it, and his continued attempts to cross the space between them, is about the most we can expect out of him. Zero Two is not in a place to see it right now, but Hero may be the only person in the world invested in her well-being, and that includes her. He's exactly what she needs, but that doesn't mean she'll improve soon. It doesn't mean she'll improve ever. This visit to Garden is not helping so far, and in the next bit we see her violent reluctance to submit to testing. I've noted that Nana seems to be empathetic to the Thirteeners, and is perhaps even coming around to see things the way Dr. Franks does, but her empathy does not extend to Zero Two. They continue to have an adversarial relationship, and this isn't going to help it. Hero expresses a desire to go to Garden despite the prohibition, and the rest of the squad tags along. They do have these moments of solidarity, and even though I have their team problems as an ongoing conflict, I think their shared hardships are forging them into a real team as time moves on. Closing ranks against the Nines in defense of Zero Two, and now all volunteering breaking the rules to accompany Hero, show some progress. They tour around, and watching the current children seems to trigger past memories for each. All seem rather somber about the experience. Ichigo's memory involves Hiro and a book called The Golden Bow, as well as discussing a holy tree called the mistletoe. My long spiel about the mistletoe and its importance seems pretty on the mark now, but this book, The Golden Bow, it's not like the Royce and Abigail book from a moment ago. This is a real book, and one I'm very familiar with. It's the reason Mistletoe jumped out at me way back in episode one. It's also the reason I inferred that there may be some worldwide infertility or fertility disruption back in episode two. It's so well known, it's even shown up in other anime. It's so important of a book to storytellers and story analysts, and to me in particular, that I'm not gonna stop here to talk about it. I'm gonna move all of that over to theme, uh, there's probably a good 10 minutes of material there. Mistletoe is one thing, but invoking this book by name like this has some far-reaching implications for our series, so uh, we'll suss it all out later. The narrative importance of this scene is simply to point out that there is apparently a tree with mistletoe in it somewhere in Garden, and that this is significant to our characters for some reason. Goto and Hiro run into one another, and Goto gives us a bit of a timeline, mentioning that they themselves were still here just six months ago, and yet now it feels like the distant past. In a way, he's right. Who they are now is far distant from who they were then. Ikuno then summons them all to view an alarming sight, a room full of children engaged in some kind of training, eyes glazed over, their heads hooked up with wires, and each receiving the concentrated yellow blood cells that the older parasites receive. Our 13ers are surprised that they're giving injections to children this young, and a creepy nearby worker chimes in. Claxosaur activity continues to increase, it seems, so the system is being retooled to produce more capable and obedient parasites. Well, 
I guess the experiment with Squad 13 is not going to be the model going forward, huh? Anyway, despite divulging operating information to the group, this worker then tells them that they're not supposed to be here. She seemed to recognize that they were Squad 13, so why even say anything other than they weren't authorized? Undeterred, Hiro tries to pursue his original purpose in coming to the building, finding Naomi. The worker, who honestly kind of reminds me of Naomi, states that once a parasite leaves this place, they never return. Except, you know, you guys in front of me. And Zero Two. And that whole group of nines. Yeah. Logical continuity aside, I think the scene is accomplishing two things. The first is that it puts a face on the children still in the program, giving the parasites and the audience an empathetic link to their plight, which may imply that saving them from this fate may become a future goal. The other thing it accomplishes is just reminding those who've forgotten that Naomi's actual fate hasn't been confirmed. I've said a few times that whether she was killed off or not makes a difference to our expectations for our other characters, and the fact that they keep reminding us of her without saying one way or the other seems pretty intentional at this point. I mean, we also don't know what happened to Zero Two's original stamen from Episode 1, right? But it's also never come up again. They want for us to be uncertain about Naomi, which I think means they want us to be uncertain about whether or not they'll kill off characters. Even if it interferes with my confidence in speculating, I like this uncertainty as a storytelling technique. Having the parasites wonder about Naomi's fate will at least start us down the road to an answer, though. I think learning she is dead and they were lied to is potentially something that will shock them out of their blind faith in Papa and Ape. We'll see. Hero is also pondering the implication of this and the unexplained disappearance of other children from Garden in their past. He inferred then that this meant that they would never become adults. This might be part of what contributed to his earlier death wish behavior. While ruminating thus, he manages to walk right up to the tree containing mistletoe. I'm gonna go out on a limb. <laughs> limb. Uh, I'm gonna go ahead and guess that this is an oak tree, by the way, so I can stop calling it the tree containing mistletoe. Looking up at this oak appears to trigger a series of images for Hero. The opening credits shot of him holding the hand of a girl with red skin, the same girl with a scraped knee oozing blue blood, and that girl in profile. I know the audience has guessed that this young girl is Zero Two, but Hero is still coming up to speed. Hey, he didn't get to watch the opening credits, okay? The important thing is that he recognizes the place, and has these memories of the young girl associated with it. They're fractured and fleeting memories, uh, something we'll talk about later, but for the first time in the series, they are establishing that Zero Two and Hero were at Garden at the same time. Now, even though Hero accepted the rest of the squad following him into Garden, it appears he wanted to be alone for the mistletoe encounter, and has sent them back ahead of him. It seems Hero is not the only one left ruminating about the visit, as Kokoro stops the group to speak something that has been on her mind for some time. She wants to know where they come from, or at least, what the others think. By the reaction, it seems they all assume that they were made by Papa and the others. That is, they don't think of themselves as children in the normal way. I guess that means that their concept of being orphans is different than ours as well. I'd guessed some time ago that taking the maternity book would mean eventually Kokoro will share what she's learned with the others. We know she's internalized it by now, but in true Kokoro style, confrontation is a slow burn, and she will probably approach this conversation by inches. Of course, Nana, professional interrupter, ends the scene, and we see the squad moving off after a chewing out. Nine Alpha, professional instigator, happens to be nearby, 
and he makes a comment that he's never seen any children disobey orders and get yelled at before. Man, just how compliant are the other squads? No wonder Zero Two seems like such a problem child. Nine Alpha won't let himself be brushed off and tries to dig information, or at least a reaction, out of Ichigo. He does get her attention when he brings up Hiro, something he does not fail to notice, and decides to tell Ichigo a big secret about Zero Two. We get another of those mouth-moving but no sound bits, so we know that we'll return to this later to hear the important parts. Our next part begins with Zero Two making good on the mirror-cracking foreshadowing. Though it won't be the last mirror shattered, I want to point out that Hero's gift was the first. I had a lot to speculate on this in episode 10, and I will repeat it here. I now speculate that the broken mirror is not representative of someone that will be antagonistic toward her, but is representative of her reaction to the ways that she is physically changing. That is to say that the prominent canines are potentially just the beginning of changes in her, and as they represent a move away from humanity, she will come to find her own looks loathsome. The mirror will transform from a treasured gift into a hated object that reflects her terrible situation back to her. She may smash it in truth, or it may simply be a metaphor for the gifts that Hero gives her that are less material, like his love and understanding and support, all the things represented by the idea of him being her wings. Thus, I speculate that she will reject him, or push him back to arm's length like she treats everyone else. She will attempt to destroy some of what they have together. I then said that I actually kind of hoped this would happen, because the characterization of her and Hero that would come out of such a conflict will be really illuminating for us and for them, and we're also likely to uncover a lot more about each of their pasts as they attempt to reconcile. Last time I also suggested that the conflict of her changing would probably escalate. I do think that this conflict is going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, this might mean her changing in ways she can't hide, or it might mean she gets especially reckless in a future combat situation and there is fallout from that. But I think there will come a point where she can't keep deflecting Hero. Well, that recklessness seems to be dead on. As we swap to a fight with a new type of Klaxosaur, apparently elk-themed to go with our wintry environs. We learn that Klaxosaurs have never been seen here before, leading Hachi to wonder if the Klaxosaurs noticed what they were up to. Anyone else feel like this implies some intelligence behind the Klaxosaurs? Or at least something intelligent uh, leading them? Not important, uh, and we see in the hangar that Zero Two's horns have grown. Hero stops short and comments, and she chastises him. He grabs her hand, but it doesn't seem she squeezes back. Instead, she only comments that they need to kill a whole lot of Klaxosaurs again today. She does not seem to be thinking of Hero as her partner in this, something we saw her embrace in the past, but instead he is just some necessary component of her goal of killing Klaxosaurs left, right, and center. The fight scene bears this out repeatedly, as she is overly aggressive, ignores coordinating with the others, and is at odds with Hero several times, even stating, why are you getting in my way too, darling? Although they end up without disaster, Zero Two is not becalmed post-battle like last time. Instead, she stabs the corpses over and over, ignoring Hero's pleas to stop, and gets a downright maniacal look on her face. We'd guessed the next part before now, but it seems that Zero Two draws a causal link between killing the Klaxosaurs and becoming human. As she becomes more monstrous, she feels herself getting further from being human, and this is manifesting as an out-of-control compulsion to slaughter Klaxosaurs. The rest of the squad is pretty freaked out by the whole affair. 
After returning home, Hero sets out to find Zero Two, following her footprints and a light trail of blood. This has a mirror back to the first episode, actually. Hero followed the blood trail of the injured two-wing bird, leading him to the pond where he encountered Zero Two. This trail also leads him to the pond in Zero Two, except this time the blood is hers. She has reverted away from being half of a gin-beard pair with him, and has turned into the injured two-wing bird from the opening, struggling to fly on her own. We remember the fate of that bird, right? I imagine Hero does as well, and finding Zero Two in such a state ramps up his worry. Although it is terrible, I can't help but find Zero Two's obsessive nail-biting and self-mutilation to be humanizing? Or believably natural, maybe? Uh, this isn't the behavior of some unknowable monstrosity or psychopath, but is a known expression of emotional turmoil or mental health issues. Even birds in captivity have been known to self-harm. It's a much more subtle and, I think, empathy-inducing behavior than some of the more dramatic things she'll do later. A hero attempts to intercede, but she shrugs him off, still muttering to herself about killing Klaxosaurs. Her desire to become human has become an unhealthy obsession, and Hero does what he thinks he can do to snap her out of it. He tries to tell her that her past doesn't matter, her horns and fangs don't matter, he's attracted to who she is. He loves her, loves her just the way she is. She's broken, but the power of love will save her. Haha, <laughs> nope. A heartfelt pronouncement may have won her over in episode four, but not here. She's at best indifferent, maybe even annoyed. After all, if she wants to be human, is telling her, that's not important because I love you, really the right approach? Isn't it like saying that her goal of becoming human should be less to her than having his love? It's kind of presumptuous, no? You might even say it's arrogant. Who cares what you want? Surely nothing could be more important to you than my attention. Now, I suspect in Hero's case, he's only being naive. He knows how he feels, and her behavior has made him desperate. Now, I said before that I thought she would become more monstrous and that Hero would be able to win her over by accepting her even in her more monstrous state. This scene might seem like a refutation of that, but I don't think that's it. I think this goes back to what I said about self-esteem issues earlier. Uh, we'll come back to this point after the very last scene. Now, like in the study earlier, Zero Two once again attempts to use physical affection as a substitute for real intimacy. Our speculation about her understanding sexuality in a way the others do not seems to be on target, but this isn't what Hero means or even wants. Rather than argue with him, connect with him, or listen to him, Zero Two complains of tedium. She is acting toward him in the same way she did toward her original partner way back in episode one. He's a means to an end, not any kind of end that she cares about. Not as she is right now. The next scene sheds some light on this, as Ichigo overhears Nada and Hachi discussing something called sorification. I think we can safely infer this means transforming more toward Klaxosaurs. Evidently, the issue with Zero Two lately is that something about piloting with Hero actually moves her towards being less human, not more human. Additionally, Hero is being nudged that way himself. He may even undergo a genetic transformation. As though to confirm this transformation in Zero Two, we see the girl's bathroom, where she has wrecked the place, smashed mirrors, and a close-up in the shower shows even her toenails growing out like claws. This might indeed be why she was biting her nails to the point of bleeding. They too may have been growing like claws, and she was paring them back even at pain to herself. 
She is shown holding her hand over her heart in the shower, something very much like Hiro is doing back during the whole Blue Heart affair. We begin our last part as Ichigo sees Zero Two and wants to speak with her, presumably because of what she just heard from Nana and Hachi. But the sight of herself in the mirrors set Zero Two off again, smashing them despite cutting herself, and Ichigo can only watch in shock. This display reminds her of the conversation with Nine Alpha, and so we finally get to hear that missing part of the conversation. He explains to her Zero Two's designation of partner killer. He says she places her partners under a curse and drains their life in order to power her franks. She gets away with it because she's the key to saving the world, and apparently she's been doing so long enough to go through at least a hundred other stamen. Nine Alpha hypothesizes that Hero might have some quality that lets him last longer than those before, but sooner or later, the curse might turn him into the same kind of monster that she is. As Ichigo is remembering these words, we move into another fight with the same Klaxosaurs. Zero Two is even more reckless than before, shoving aside her squad mates in her lust to destroy the Klaxosaurs and gain her humanity. Hiro puts the brakes on, arguing with her that she can't become human that way, but she seems way beyond reaching at the moment. In fact, she goes even more bestial, red-eyed and slavering, and even somehow invokes stampede mode with Hero connected. Doing this results in... I don't know what. A hallucination? Part of their mind sharing? Either way, a completely red silhouette of Zero Two rises up and begins to choke the life from Hero. I kind of wonder if this is what Mitsuru experienced back in Episode 3. It seems she now intends to drain Hero in the same way she has done to pass Stamen. They are not partners. They are not a gin bird pair. They are not lovers. She demands his life, saying that she's going to become human so she can meet her darling from back then. Nana warns us that sorification is about to begin, although she doesn't say for whom, and in the cockpit, Hero's vision is replaced with the swirling starfield that we have seen represents the parasites connecting their minds. During this process, Hero is being fed a series of short images. A girl with white hair, red skin, and large horns in a cloak huddled in the shadowed corner of a room, and then a closer image of the same scene. We see some kind of equipment crashing against the ground and part of it shattering. Uh, we see a room full of stuffed animals and toys, mostly ripped and damaged. And then a hand turning the page of a picture book, depicting some kind of harpies or winged female demons. Hero slowly realizes that he's seen these images before. Then he makes this statement. Hands clasped together and eyes filled with hatred for the world against images of the red-skinned girl in front of the oak and stepping through the snow and looking at an injured finger. These are all the images that we saw way back in the first few seconds of the show, and we've known these were Zero Two all along. This is Hero catching up, and to demonstrate this, he says, Ah, I remember now. That's... she's... And then Zero Two speaks over this. That's right. I'm a monster in disguise. Now, I am guessing that this voice is her in the present, somehow having the presence of mind to realize that Hero is seeing these past images, and she is reluctantly confirming for him that the other girl he sees is her. She's even more monstrous in truth than he might have guessed. I feel like there is some real sorrow in her voice here. It's an in-control voice, so maybe it's her inner self, somehow distinct from the crazed self that is attacking Hero. Regardless, it is not happy at being this red-skinned thing. It is not happy being a monster inside. I mentioned during his failed Power of Love scene that his acceptance of who she is doesn't seem to have won her over, even though this was how I thought he would eventually get through to her. 
This last scene fills in the blanks as to why this doesn't work, and it's related to what I said about self-esteem earlier. Hero may indeed be willing to accept her current self, love her anyway, but she is self-loathing. She doesn't internalize his words as positive, but instead believes that they arise from ignorance on his part. If he really knew her, he would loathe her in the same way she loathes herself. Now we see why accepting the short horns and canines doesn't move her at all. She knows that she's actually this red-skinned, blue-blooded demon. He doesn't know that, but proclaims to love her just as she is? Don't make her laugh. He has no idea what just as she is even means. At least, until now. And so the episode ends hanging on this point, the first real cliffhanger of the series, and we're left mostly with questions. A lot of things are implied by this last scene, sure. Uh, I think it's pretty safe to say now that Hero and Zero Two met in their youth, when she was red-skinned and white-haired, and at least one of those meetings happened in front of our mistletoe oak tree. There are a ton of things we can guess, but I'm going to do all of that in speculation. Now that she's confirmed her desire to become human, and now that we have the threat of sorification as well, I think it will also be time to finally talk about the Red Oni, Blue Oni story. Even though that belongs in theme, it's still speculative at this point, so uh, we'll do it then. The last thing I want to point out is how we're left off looking at Young Zero Two in the snow. Remember back to the beginning when I talked about how snow can mean love or death, and sometimes both? Here is where we end then. Hero looking at the past Zero Two, someone he will one day profess to love, all while having the life drained from him by the present Zero Two. Which then will the future Zero Two bring him? Love or death? Or it may be that for him, she will encapsulate both. So there's progress on three goals this time. The known goal with progress is Ape's goal of a future of calmness and uniformity. We see the upcoming parasites being prepared and trained in a way far more invasive and accelerated than our 13ers experienced. And the nearby worker confirms that part of this is building a more obedient population of children. This indicates an official increase in controlling their will in contrast to the more self-deterministic 13th Squad. There's also an update of sorts to the Ape Unknown goal, which we already knew involved getting Zero Two to the Grand Crevasse. Now we learn that not only is Plantation 13 yoked to this fate, but all the plantations are heading there as well. Nana has promised to explain this to the Parasites, so potentially we'll find out more then as well. Lastly, and most importantly, we have the best type of update for Zero Two's unknown goal. It is no longer unknown. We had guessed before that killing Klaxosaurs was somehow part of it, and also that it likely included a desire to become more human or fully human. Now we have it all linked together. Those were indeed just means to an end. The end, her actual goal, is to meet her darling from back then. We'll talk plenty more about that in speculation. Actually knowing why she does the things she does is a huge step to understanding her character. She's fixated on finding or meeting or being with some darling from her past and therefore has almost no use for any other human relationship. This isn't a healthy goal exactly, but now we do know what drives her, a key piece of understanding the story we're in. So we've got several updates and conflicts as well. The first is that our overarching Klaxosaur threat is indicated to be increasing thus necessitating the more extreme training of the children in Garden. We also see that they have entered the area around Garden for the first time ever, further escalating the worldwide situation. 
I expect that the measure we see with the children won't be the end of their reaction to this. Whatever they are doing to combat Klaxosaurs, it isn't enough, and they know it. Prepare for them to step up their game. We also have a return of the Zero-Two Devours Partners conflict. This seems like it could have been resolved back in Episode 6, when Hero returned from death with new purpose and thus survived the third piloting. It seems now that this actually is what kicked off the later conflict of Zero-Two changing. Hero's continued riding with her has accelerated her sorification, and it seems his own. Now that Zero-Two sees Hero as standing in the way of her true goal, along with her worsening mental state, she has returned to devouring partners. Related to that, we have a return of the conflict I called Blue Heart, Yellow Blood. Back in Episode 6, Hero seemed to absorb the obviously abnormal Blue Heart and the veins that had sprung up on him, but it was never explained how this changed things, or even if. Now we learn that Hero has been increasing Zero-2's transition to being more monstrous, and he's along for the ride. I can't help but feel this is related to whatever happened in that cockpit when he died and came back, uh, because I believe he came back changed. We just don't yet understand what or why. Lastly, the most obvious conflict of Zero-Two changing, something that has accelerated for these past three episodes. The changes to her physicality and her orientation to Hero both ramp up in obvious fashion this time. She has started self-harming and ends this episode by turning that harm outward toward Hero, potentially threatening his life. Like mentioned, we now know that it is Hero himself causing this change in her. Why that should be, we simply don't know. Um, I don't think, though, that Zero-Two has made that link. I don't think her aggression toward him comes from a kind of blame, but is rather a symptom of her changes. As she becomes more monstrous, she becomes less human, and therefore exhibits less human qualities. Her attempts to fit in and seem more human scale down, her romantic instincts towards Hero become tedious and undesirable, and her empathy towards others pulls back to nothing, allowing her to disregard her teammates and threaten her own partner. I know this is obvious with how we ended, but this is the key conflict right now. Not just because we ended with our main point of view character's life in the balance, but because it connects to so many other conflicts and goals. However this is resolved will alter the course of the story from then on, mark my words. So theme. Theme was going to be crowded today, but some of them are really more tied to speculation. We don't yet know if they apply. So we won't actually dive into some of them, most of them here, uh, though I'll mention them in passing. One of these is the death and rebirth theme, and how it applies depends on how our cliffhanger gets resolved. Another one is individual versus society, specifically related to the cost of acceptance idea explored in the Red Oni Blue Oni story uh, that we'll talk about in a few minutes. We also had a return of bird and flight metaphors. I mentioned the dripping blood, two-wing bird analogy already, and the way it applies to Zero-Two this time around. It also might apply to the picture book that we see for a moment, which shows images of a bird that is also a monster. I will speculate on its potential significance uh, in speculation as well. Snow symbolism we also covered pretty well throughout the episode. Um, it has overlap with death and rebirth, so we will also table this one until next time when we see what becomes of our cliffhanger. That leaves the very long thing I really want to talk about, which is this book, The Golden Bow. I've probably read this book four or five times in my life, and a familiarity with it is part of why I've speculated a lot of the things I have. 
Mistletoe lore is one of those things, something we see in the first 10 seconds of the entire series. And I said in that episode, Mistletoe itself has some interesting mythology surrounding it, but we'll wait and see if that's actually a thing in this episode before I wander off on that tangent. Considering how much plant symbolism we have though, I wouldn't be surprised. Now I went over mistletoe and its widespread adoption in world mythologies back in episode nine, when the image on the back of the mirror convinced me that they were invoking mistletoe on purpose. Episode 12 comes and now there's no denying it, and they go ahead and show the golden bow right alongside, further indicating that its mythological significance is what they are referencing. Now I'm not going to rehash everything on mistletoe here. If you like, you can visit just that section of my past video by going to episode nine at timestamp 3455. Instead, let's talk a bit about the golden bow because I am unsure how much of this book might be relevant to our series. Uh, so we might as well all be on the same page right now. The Golden Bow was a book first published in the late 19th century by the Scottish anthropologist Sir James George Fraser, and it was republished several times stretching into the 20th century as he continued to expand and add examples to his original ideas. Anthropologists have attacked the work for various reasons over the years, uh, which happens to anything that is popular with non-academics, uh, but his contribution to anthropology is not actually why the book is so famous and its effect so widespread. Its biggest impact was on the literary world, and it was an enormous influence on early 20th century authors, both those who wrote stories and those who studied them. It is directly referenced in a number of modernist works, and Joseph Campbell's landmark book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, specifically names the Golden Bow as an inspiration. That book is the reason you may have heard the term monomyth, and it helped popularize knowledge of the hero's journey story structure. As the title probably indicates, The Hero with a Thousand Faces is about the similarity between stories of heroes across many times and many places. Not just things that make the heroes themselves similar, but the actual way in which their stories develop. The Golden Bow has the same goal to draw comparisons between stories from many peoples and times and show how they are related to one another. What Fraser was specifically interested in was the link between mythology and religion, how mythologies about the way the world worked and were related to the rituals that they inspired, and how those rituals informed the mythologies around them in turn. Over time, the two tend to drift apart, and so trying to discern the original link between a number of stories and practices became the main thrust of his work. And when I say a number, I mean a number. Reading the book, even the abridged versions, it's hard not to be awed by the amount of examples of a certain practice or mythology and how many different places it will appear and how many slight variations it may present. Although this may not end up being important for drawing in the Franks, one of the main theses of the Golden Bow was that mankind went through three stages, magic to religion, to science. Basically, mankind starts out by believing that he can directly influence the world through his own mystical rituals. One of the most common ways is what Fraser calls sympathetic magic. Basically, like influences like, where man believed he could, say, cause rainfall by sprinkling water on the ground, or heal a broken bone by wrapping up a broken stick that they believed was linked to the injured person. Sympathetic magic is something that shows up a ton in modern fantasy systems, sometimes even directly called sympathy, and it comes from this commonly held belief about man's ability to directly influence the world through actions that mirrored the desired effect. 
how Fraser thought that magic inevitably gave way to religion. Man attempts to influence the world, eventually realizes that he can't, but notes that the world continues despite his actions. The rains still come, the seasons cycle, there's birth and death and everything in between. So man reasons that he's not powerful enough to control these things, but something must be, some beings that are greater than man. So he moves from trying to change the world directly to trying to influence those beings to change the world on his behalf. Rituals don't go away, but instead evolve to center around persuading the gods to grant them a good harvest, or return the earth to spring, or grant them victory over their enemies. Again, Fraser believes that religion in turn inevitably gives way to science. Man moves back to trying to influence the world directly, but instead of doing so with mystical ritual, it is instead the ritual of trial and error, empirical study, and repeated testing. In other words, man started out sprinkling water to invoke rain, then moved to praying and sacrificing for rain, then moved to inventing meteorology and irrigation to take matters into his own hands. No matter what stage we are in, though, man has the same pattern. Repetitive and shared rituals which we use both to change the world around us and to understand the world around us. This is why the mythology behind these rituals and how they were linked was of such interest to other writers. The main emphasis in The Golden Bow is on how important stories and storytelling are to all cultures, and how much all of us share in common in these stories. Our instinct for storytelling, even in modern times, is about understanding. Understanding the world and people around us, and understanding ourselves. The stories from a culture can tell you a lot about what they valued and how they are different from yourself, but the shared aspects of storytelling between others' cultures and your own begin to tell you how we are alike. All of us. Everywhere. It's the reason some English-speaking American like me can watch an animation in a foreign language by a foreign culture about fictional characters in a fabricated universe and still find it resonate. Still find it relatable. Applicable. Now, why the Golden Bow might be applicable to our particular anime has to do with the elements that Fraser found most common in the world's mythmaking. Chief among these are the practices that he grouped together as fertility rites, or fertility cults. I've already spoken at length about all the fertility symbolism going on in Darling of the Franks, so again, I, I won't rehash, but there is another aspect in the Golden Bow that might hint at added relevance. In writing about these fertility cults, Fraser demonstrated that some variation of these belief systems existed all over the place in varying sophistication, but all revolved around trying to ensure the rebirth of the world each spring, the fertility of nature and livestock and crops, and the renewal of some fundamental vitality in the world. Sometimes this vitality was believed to exist in the people at large, but oftentimes it was instead believed to be contained in the singular person of a king or priest. In fact, many believe that the vitality and fertility of the world, or, or their people, were bound up with the vitality or fertility of their high priest or king, who was often the same person. They believe that as their priest king goes, so goes the rest of the world. When the priest king is hale and healthy, young and virile, all is well. But what to do when he's not? What happens when he ages, or takes ill, or ends up being infertile? Surely the world itself is then in peril. The solution is pretty simple. You sacrifice that priest-king, and a new priest-king takes his place, one who more appropriately embodies the vitality they need. You aren't killing your leader, you're saving the world. The king is dead, 
Long live the king. This might seem really odd to our modern sensibilities, but it was quite normal to the cultures where it took place. After all, didn't the world itself die each year only to be reborn? Why should the role of the priest king who represents this vitality be any different? Now, sometimes this death was part of a normal sacrificial ritual. There are any number of religions and myths where there is a sacrificial or dying god who must die and be either reborn or replaced. And sometimes this is mimicked by the sacrifice of something else, like livestock or crops or actual people. But sometimes it instead took the form of a king killing his predecessor and taking his place, only to one day be killed himself. How many stories have we seen where becoming the leader of a kingdom or a tribe or some other group involves killing the current one and taking over? How better to prove that you are a better representative of the vitality of the world and its strength than by besting the one who currently claims that title? The faces change, but the hero stays the same. Now, let's take that idea and look at Darling and the Franks. The normal pattern of mankind and nature, where newer generations replace the old, has been upturned. The old linger, age, wither, and the newer generations are expended and suppressed and controlled. The world at large seems to reflect the fertility of the rulers, or, or rather the lack thereof. Rather than being renewed and green and vibrant, the land reflects its rulers, aging, wasted, disconnected from the natural order, and no longer reproducing. The barrenness of the world is embodied by the barrenness of its priest kings. As I said before, it's my familiarity with the Golden Bow that made me first seize on the idea that there might be a type of infertility in this world. That was back in episode two, way before there was any hint that people had stopped having children or that the population was aging and trying to live forever. It's an archetypal story pattern. Like I said, Fraser's impact on the literary world was enormous. So what would be the solution to this upturned natural order? Well, as Fraser noted, there are two patterns. One is that the death of the priest king and his replacement can be part of a normal sacrificial pattern. This mirrors the death and rebirth of the natural world each year, and is also reflected in the way that younger generations replace older. The dead nourish the living, the old pass on to make way for the young. But in this plantation society, those in power have upset the balance which means the second pattern. The priest king must be killed by his successor. So what to watch for? Uh, there's three things we can mention and two of them that will take off. We have this question of why does Zero Two need to kill Klaxosaurus? Well, she may not actually need to, uh, we don't know, but she certainly believes that killing Klaxosaurus gets her closer to being human, which gets her closer to meeting her darling from back then. Man, it's nice to have that goal out and understood. We also had a question from episode three about whether she can control how much damage her partner takes. I think that we can say she does. Nine Alpha indicates that she powers the Franks by drawing life force from her partner, something we also speculated based on an episode three exchange. Hero somehow got to a point where he could feed her the power she needed without risking himself, but it seems she can will herself into stampede mode and devour him directly. Lastly, we have what will happen with Kokoro and the maternity book. Uh, this one's not coming off, but we saw her begin to broach the subject with everyone else, uh, no doubt inspired by their visit to the upcoming children. They react at first as though she's being weird, so our non-confrontational Kokoro will probably have to work herself up to pushing any further. 
The way they've drugged this out from episode 7 when she found it tells me that they're wanting to put this revelation off until we deal with the current Zero Two crisis. This time, they just wanted to remind us that Kokoro is still preoccupied with it, and she'll soon be ready to talk with everyone else about it. We will leave this here until that happens. What will we add to the list? Well, now that both squads have met each other, we can watch for the Nines to show back up in the story probably in some kind of rivalry situation with our 13ers. Relatedly, now that we can confirm that there are three pistols in their group that are either triplets or clones and wear some kind of mask, we should be watching to find out why is those things I said. They're an elite squad, so whatever is going on with those girls is surely for some benefit to their piloting aptitude. It may give us a clue to the mysteries about the whole piloting process. Finally, the obvious thing to watch for, what happened in Zero Two and Heroes Shared Youth? It set both of them down the path they've walked since then, it seems. Uh, I will speculate on that at length in the next section. First up in speculation, we have a few things to take off our board. We pointed out that this one, that Zero Two will push Hero away, sabotage a relationship, started up last episode. This time we end with her strangling him for her own ends, having crapped all over his affection the whole episode. This definitely happened, and it definitely increased as I suggested last time, so we'll call it confirmed and remove it. Additionally, down here we have the speculation that Zero Two killing Klaxosaurs leads to her being less monstrous. It's hinted that this may only be something she believes, rather than something that is demonstrably true, uh, but we know now that she links them in her mind, which is what we guessed when we originally added this. So uh, we'll take it off. Now for things to add. <laughs> so many things to add. Um, I'm actually going to limit myself here and just hit the big things. Let's start off by talking about a speculation that has been suggested by a few things in the series to this point, not least of which is the color scheming between Hero and Zero Two. This is actually both speculation and theme together, and to understand that, I will need to tell you the story of the Red Oni and the Blue Oni, and what the theme of that story may mean for our own. There are a lot of versions of this tale, but the basic gist is that we're once two Oni who were friends, a red one and a blue one. Oni is similar to our concept of an ogre or a troll, but basically is a creature monstrous and frightening in appearance, usually with horns. As the story goes, the Red Oni wanted to be friends with the children of a nearby village, but none would come to visit him, no doubt on account of him looking like, well, like an Oni. The Blue Oni suggested a plan to overcome this. He would pretend to terrorize the children, and then the Red Oni would swoop in and drive him away, rescuing them. They pull this plan off, and the children do indeed want to play with the Red Oni, their savior. Red Oni enjoys his day of playing with the children, happy to have met his goal, but when he returns home, he finds a note from Blue Oni. Blue Oni explains that he has left. If the children or their parents learn that Red Oni is friends with him, then his work to befriend them will be for nothing. He will lose his new friendship with the children. To prevent this, Blue Oni has preemptively departed, and he implores Red Oni to be happy with the children. But instead, Red Oni is sad over the loss of his friend, and they would never meet again. Now there are several themes or lessons you can extract from that tale, like the true meaning of friendship and the consequences of judging by appearance and so forth, but the one I think relevant to our tale is the cost of fitting in. Red Oni thought he wanted to fit in with the children of the village, but once it costs him his friendship with Blue Oni, he discovers too late that it was a choice. 
that there is a price to be paid for that acceptance. Zero Two wants to be human. She wants acceptance on some level too, since she blames her horns for always being alone. It seems she has specifically zeroed in on this darling from her youth, but we have seen her pursuing being more human quite apart from that too. But like the Red Oni, there may be something she will give up for this goal, possibly without realizing it. This seems extremely relevant in this moment, as she's choking the life out of probably the person who cares the most about her in the whole world. Killing him and somehow gaining humanity out of it would be very on-the-nose way of retelling this tale, with Zero Two as the Red Oni losing the companionship of Hero, the Blue. Being human without him might turn out not to be what she wanted after all. Red Oni, Blue Oni has more significance than just the tale itself, actually. The idea of pairing characters who embody a pattern of traits with someone who embodies an opposite pattern of traits has come to be known as a Red Oni, Blue Oni pairing. In this, the Red Oni character is usually passionate, wild, hot-headed, impulsive, and defiant, while the Blue Oni character is calm, controlled, calculated, obedient. Sometimes they are opposite by being extroverted versus introverted, or physical versus intellectual, but it's pretty common to have opposite pairings in stories, and you will frequently have which character is which also color-coded to match this pattern. The color-coding part is especially common in anime, even though some prominent Western examples exist, but even without the color pattern, you will find these type of character pairings all over. Some series even use contrasting pairs over and over and over and over again. Zero Two and Hero pretty well fit this pattern, even the color part, which is made especially obvious in the opening credits. However, please understand that this is a characterization trope, not a narrative trope. The plot and theme of the original Red Oni, Blue Oni story can exist quite separate from the idea of having opposite characterizations paired. Just because characters exhibit this pairing does not mean they are going to emulate the story of the Red and Blue Oni. But admittedly, it can be both. The characterization version of Red Oni, Blue Oni is at play in our series for sure. Is the origin narrative or its theme at play too? Well, let's explore that idea. I mentioned before that I am aware that there is a Blue Oni theory floating around about the series. Evidently, it was noticed that Zero Two is red-themed and has horns, while Hero is blue-themed. They are paired up, and there is a lot of implication that the two of them are similar. From this, people have extrapolated that Hero will change into the same kind of thing as Zero Two, thus making them a red-oni, blue-oni pair quite literally. Two different characters this episode implied that he may change in this way, so this isn't outside the realm of possibility. My problem with this theory is that... That's not how the story goes at all. The Red Oni and Blue Oni start out as companions. They start out being different than everyone else. Seeing Red with horns and Blue without horns, and then concluding that Blue will eventually gain horns is not impossible or anything, but that's not what that story is about. Of course, that may only mean that people ascribing to this theory are just getting ahead of themselves. If Hero does change into the same type of thing as Zero Two, then we might be at the beginning of the Red Oni, Blue Oni story. Then we should be on the lookout for that story to unfold. If that happens, we should expect the possibility that Zero Two will eventually give Hero up over some other goal she has, and in that case, we should expect Hero to realize this and accept it, maybe even initiate it. They will go their separate ways, whether in life or death, and Zero Two may be faced with realizing what she surrendered in the pursuit of other things. Or, 
they could heavily imply that it will play out this way, only to have Zero Two subvert it and choose Hero over the other thing that she wants. So that brings up the next thing to speculate about. Is Hero going to change into the same kind of thing as Zero Two? The sorification that Nana says will begin? First of all, we don't know which of them she is even talking about, or even if it's just one of them. Zero Two could change into being red-skinned and white-haired again, with nothing happening to Hero at all, and her statements this time would still be consistent. Or Hero ends up with horns, as Nine Alpha implies. Or both things happen. That would be something. I mentioned already that we expected him to change in some fundamental way after the events of Episode 6. But here's the thing. Zero Two doesn't want another monster to pal around with. She wants to be human, to be rid of the monstrous side. Narratively, I feel like we've had plenty of clues that he is capable of changing, and it would certainly escalate the conflict. It would also raise the stakes of understanding exactly what the Klaxosaurs are and how humanity relates to them. But thematically, I feel like him accepting her as human when she is far from it would make more sense. For Hero and the rest of the squad, Accepting a more monstrous Zero Two would be them embracing the nature, individuality, and chaotic side of the dualities we have noted are present. Rejecting her in the side of the spectrum she is on would mean moving themselves closer in alignment to the rest of plantation society, right? Since we already have a lot of hints that they are becoming different from them, and are becoming even more so, it's much more consistent for them to be accepting of someone on the other side, more extreme than themselves. This would collectively move them closer to nature rather than artifice, individuality rather than conformity, and chaos rather than order. Having Zero Two instead eventually become more humid would mirror this quest to find the acceptable middle ground, and it would answer her question, what is human to you people? There's actually a way they could have their cake and eat it too. A more mild version would be Hero beginning to change, thus causing Zero Two to break off whatever is happening, potentially even taking his new monstrous development into herself and becoming more of a monster, maybe even full-blown red-skinned and white-haired. A more dramatic version would be the opposite happening. Hero somehow taking her monstrous side into himself, leaving her completely human and him the outsider. And it's totally something he would do. Then all the questions about the squad accepting someone non-human into their midst uh, become different than questions about accepting Zero Two. We still have a whole half of a story to tell here, and this would be one heck of a way to complicate all these characterizations. However, there is a way that I think Hero could become monstrous and this be a thing that Zero Two accepts, or he doesn't change and she can accept her own monster status. And that way is if she believes that Hero is the darling from back then. So let's speculate about that a bit, shall we? There have been clues throughout the series that the two of them may have met before. There's the obvious placement of holding hands in the opening credits, surrounded by images of only the two of them. This got further reinforced last time when we see young hero in a coat that matches the one in those credits. Then there's the first words she says to him after sniffing him. Oh, and here I thought you were dead. Words which make little sense to someone you've just met, but make a fair bit of sense to say to someone you knew in the past but have not seen in so long you assume they must have died. She also ends that first episode by saying, found you, my darling. In context, it seems like she could just mean that she found someone to play the role of darling, which Hero assumes is just what she calls her partner, but it may actually mean something different to her. 
Then there's bringing her to Plantation 13 in the first place, along with the simultaneous permission granted to Hero to stay on even without Naomi. Neither of those things has ever been explained for us, but considering how things have turned out, it doesn't seem like it was a coincidence. Then there is the moment he is either dreaming or dying in episode 6, when he has the vision of standing in front of the oak tree in snow, and Zero Two is there as well. Perhaps the biggest one of all, though, is the very first moments of the entire series, and the fact that both of them know the Jin Bird story. What's more, Zero Two's paired images are of her as a child in front of the tree, and with what must be Hero while dressed the same as the other Thirteeners. Linking these two images together has turned out to be more than just representative of her past and her future, but of Hero's as well. So, they almost certainly met as children. I'll confess that I'm not 100% happy with this right now, uh, as it reminds me an awful lot of Elfin Lead. What with the half-monster girl, experiments on children, the forgotten youthful meeting, the irresistible monstrous nature, the fixation on one boy as worthy of empathy and disregarding everyone else, and so on. That said, I'd be plenty happy with some thematic overlap, as the meaning of humanity is central to that work as well. Anyway, combined with how this episode ended, there are things I think are safe to assume about the past in Darling and the Franks. Hero and Zero Two met as children, in Garden, around the time that Mitsuru received the elixir injection. Zero Two was red-skinned, white-haired, and blue-blooded at the time they met. Hiro, though, has no memory of this, or even the time period around it, which is why he doesn't remember Mitsuru's promise, or injection, or recognize Zero Two. This memory loss is somehow related to how Hiro changed from the charismatic natural leader he used to be, into the person who has been on a downward slide ever since. Whether there is some trauma, as I suggested, that caused both this and the memory loss, or if the memory loss was something auxiliary to it, uh, we don't yet know that. The memory loss could actually be something forced upon him. Additionally, both of them went to that oak tree with mistletoe, and something about that encounter was significant enough to burn itself into both of their memories. So those are the things we know. Then there are some things that are a little less clear. One is why Zero Two never brings any of this up. Did she decide she was mistaken about recognizing him? And relatedly, why did she give him her name as Zero Two? We know now that she was Nine Iota, and she's only referred to Code Zero Zero Two by Ape and Hachi, and even Nana at first, who didn't call her Zero Two until after the other parasites did. Side note, but her given name is part of what fuels the Blue Oni theory. If you look at her name as a zero and a two, you could read it as O and Ni, as in two, together, Oni. But even though she says everyone calls her Zero Two originally, we can look back and realize that this isn't true. What's more, she's resistant to Hero trying to come up with a name for her back in Episode 3. Indeed, she questions the purpose of names in general. Also, if she did recognize him, it seems she must have decided she was mistaken at some point, or else why disown him as she has here lately? So with all that asked, here are the things I think probably happened. Hero met her back when they were younger, and made quite the impression on her. He is the darling from back then, but as mentioned, he has lost his memory of this. Part of this whole affair involved him seeing her in the room where she was kept, which is where the images of her in the corner and the torn stuffed animals comes from. I also think he read picture books to her, uh, which is why she knows of them at all. I also think that he is the one who told her the Jin Bird story, which is why they both know it. 
We've already established that he likes birds and he likes mythology. Kind of makes sense. I think that despite how she looked then, he showed her real affection and real acceptance, which is why he is so singular in her mind, and it's why she doesn't care about being accepted in her current state. I also think that both of them went to that oak tree with the mistletoe, and either that is where they first met, or they snuck out to see it together. I could see Hero's familiarity with the golden bow making him want to do so, and either he took her, or she already knew of it and guided him. And if that's the case, then I could see where something happened as a result of that. Either they got busted and in trouble, or something more traumatizing happened, and either way, they were separated from then on. If it goes this way, then I would guess that that is related to his memory loss, either as a result of what happened, or intentionally induced by the lab authorities. Somewhere in all of this, she was convinced that they can be reunited if she becomes fully human, and that she can do that by killing Klaxosaurs. She may have been told this by her handlers as a way of keeping her on track, or she may have gotten the idea from one of the picture books. We see a brief image of one that seems to show harpies or some other half-woman, half-beast creatures. Perhaps she sees herself in those creatures, and something in that story convinced her to follow the path of seeking humanity. Maybe that is why she is searching the study. She's looking for that book once more, to read it again and remind herself, or to re-examine what it says. Finally, and most importantly, I think Hero named her. I've been saying for some time that he would bestow a name upon her, and the moment would have some special importance. What if that has already happened? What if that's the reason she changes her mind about him from their initial encounter and then gives him the Zero Two name instead? He asks her what her name is, which would mean he doesn't remember naming her. If she already had some name from her youthful darling, and this guy doesn't know it, then maybe she's not who she thought he was. Or she recognizes him, but without his memory, it's like he's not really him. Maybe even she carries some bitterness over this, further reinforcing the parallel I drew between her and Mitsuru last time. This would also explain her dismissing Hiro's efforts to name her. She doesn't want some other name to overwrite what the past guy gave her, even if she thinks they're the same person. It would go toward explaining something else, too. I don't think Zero Two has ever called him Hero. It's always Darling or My Darling, but he certainly would have introduced himself as Hero back then, right? So, what might he have named her? Well, I want to endorse something that one of you suggested. I couldn't find the comment thread again to give credit, so please, if you're watching, speak up in the comments. Um, the idea comes from the thing we already discussed, that her name could be read as Oni. Hero likes to dispense names, right? But he does so in a way that incorporates their code numbers, and so calling her Oni would match that pattern. But you really think she'd want to be called that, considering everything else we know about her? I don't think so. Instead, here's a little theory about how it could have gone down. He does start playing around with her code number, and does at first call her Oni. But I can see him quickly realizing his mistake, perhaps encouraged by a murderous glare or two. And so instead, he deflects into calling her something that almost sounds like Oni. Like, honey. Yeah, that's it. I didn't say Oni, I said honey. Yes, honey, honey, honey. And perhaps she tries on this new name. Perhaps she realizes that it's a term of endearment. Perhaps she turns red at the thought, or more red at the thought. But it won't do for her to have a term of endearment and not him, so she gives him one back. 
darling. Honey and darling. I think it's worth pointing out that both of these terms of endearment have become loanwords into Japanese. They are familiar with them as pet names that couples give each other. And this is why she calls him what she does and resists any attempt for him to call her something else. Now, whether that cool idea pans out or not, I do believe he gave her some name. And the ultimate proof that he is the darling from her youth is for him to remember it and call her by it once more. The power of names will get play twice that way, both in the original humanizing naming action and in a future scene where he reminds her that she has been humanized already and he is the one who did it. Despite the avalanche of speculations I just laid out, this is the one that I'm most certain of, and it's the most important one too. So that's the end of today's video. I know I skipped some things. Um, I'm sure there will be plenty more to discuss when our multi-part mid-season climax continues. Uh, and I won't be surprised if we spend a lot of time in the past next episode. Title music by Russell J. Crowe, other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearlyonred. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.